Let's get into God's word. Revelation 21. It's a lot of verses, so hang with me as we read through it. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. One on, on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his, uh, with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were... Twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will be the... By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those 
who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Father, give us a, a holy anticipation of the glory that awaits us as your people. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, I personally believe that Jesus is going to return on the feast known today as Rosh Hashanah. It's the Feast of Trumpets. It's the, I believe, last trumpet in the Old Testament that God inaugurated and gave to his people when he delivered them out of Egypt and established them as his people and nation. He gave them seven feasts, and one of those, the last feast that has not been fulfilled is the Feast of Trumpets. You know when Rosh Hashanah starts? Tonight at sundown. Years ago in my Bible class at North Lake, uh, and Molly, my, my daughter, who's a senior in college this year, she texted me. She said, oh, Dad, Rosh Hashanah is Sunday night and Monday. And she still remembers when, this was back when her, I think it was Harvey that hit, Hurricane Harvey that hit Houston, and everybody was throwing out these numbers about Luke and these numbers and the date in August matched these numbers. And so I'm playing along with it, and I'm diving into it. Yeah, yeah, end of the world. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know when I think Jesus is coming back? Rosh Hashanah, you know when that is? Two weeks from now. And they all got wide-eyed, and they're all freaking out. <laughs> Molly said, Dad, you wrecked my class. <laughs> I said, I'm kind of grateful for that because now they'll always remember that at least once a year they'll get their, right, they'll get their life right with the Lord. <laughs> so, so just to make sure. <laughs> but what if Jesus really was coming back at daybreak tomorrow? Lord, bring it. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But would there be a sense of loss that we didn't get to experience something on this earth or maybe heaven is not all that we had anticipated it to be? Or is your heart ready for that? Think about that. It, if Jesus were coming back, wait, 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 white throne, great white throne judgment inaugurated tomorrow, we are standing before Jesus. Would our names be found written in the book of life? You can know that. You can know that simply by repenting of your sins and trusting Christ for salvation right now. It's not dependent upon your works. See, many people will go before him and say, but didn't we do a lot of good stuff in your name? Didn't we? We were good, Jesus. We, I, I look at my works and I like them. Why don't Jesus, you look at my works and my effort. Jesus looks at those and says, that's not the currency of eternal life. That's like trying to show up using Monopoly money to pay for a house. It doesn't work. But we keep on bringing our, our works. We keep on bringing our effort. And Jesus looks at us and says, it's by your faith that you are saved. Trusting that Jesus died the death every single one of us should have died. That we might have his life which he freely gives us by repenting of our sins and trusting him. You died to take away my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. I trust you. And we thrust ourselves completely on him. That's how we know that our names are written. If we do that and our faith is expressed in Christ, that's how we know our name is written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. 
Because rebellious hearts can't do that. Hearts that say, Jesus, I want you. So how would we live? Would we live differently? Do we, would we anticipate something that would be a happier place than what we know on this earth? Because a fairy tale ending really does await us. And it will really, really will be forever. And it will not disappoint you know the phrase, uh, I heard this years ago, if something seems too good to be true, it's probably because it is. It's too good to be true. It really isn't that. We, we seem to have this inherent pessimism when we live life because we don't want to uh, be let down by something and we, we want to hope, but we don't want our hope to disappoint us. And so we kind of live with this, ah, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. So we live with this weird pessimism. But can that really be heaven? Is there pessimism? No, because the hope of heaven will not disappoint us. An underlying theme of all the images that we've read and considered in this book of Revelation is that things are not what they seem. When it looks bad outside, something greater is taking place behind the scenes. The engine of time is pushing toward the revelation of Jesus. And when he appears, it will be on whatever good we can think of. And remember, when God pronounced everything good in the creation order, it was really, really beyond our imagination good. And that's what God will do again And he will make a new heaven and a new earth. All things will be new. And he will then pronounce it gooder. Oh, this is good. So if God's able to do that, we have something glorious that awaits us as well. And when he appears, it will not not disappoint. Uh, Having a lot of girls in my family. Uh, we love happily ever after movies. There, there's a lot of those that are, and uh, and the ones that don't end that way seem to annoy. Like, ah, oh, it's not resolved. I don't like this. We need happily ever after. But we've got that ending, and this chapter promises that there really is a new beginning ahead of us that we don't have to wait for January first. For the new beginning. It's a new beginning that will never end. And we can let our imaginations wander about and roam like we're kids because it really will happen. Being able to hold your breath for a week (laughs) while you dive into the ocean to explore without your lungs caving in because of the pressure. Being able to build a rocket ship that will go beyond, really will travel light years. Can you imagine that? That's where we have to be kids again when it comes to thinking about heaven. Because we will be doing something. We will not just, it's not disembodied spirits. We will be there and we will know one another. We won't have to introduce ourselves again. You look really familiar. Did I know you in another life? Come on, that was a good joke, (laughs) y'all. Over your heads. You're not awake this morning. The hope of heaven will not disappoint. That's what this chapter tells us. And there are two main sections in the chapter, but I, I see three themes. 
verses 1 through 8, announce the holy city's arrival. And verses 9 through 27, give the details of that holy city. And the three themes that we see are the city of God, the glory of God, and our experience with God. What is the city of God? We see it coming, pronounced. It's, it's when all of the skies are ripped open, this holy, and Jesus finally uh, appears and there's the throne judgment now we see the city of God coming down and this city is something the old testament uh, has longed for the prophets and the 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 fathers of the faith They've longed for a city that God would establish that would be like no other man-made city and we see that in Hebrews 11 with Abraham's description. Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose, des- whose designer and builder is God. The prophets looked for a city that would replace Jerusalem. So often defined by man's sinful craving. God, they started out looking for God and, and obeying God and being holy. But their cravings made them wander and David's sons that were on the throne, worshiping idols, and then foreign occupation. And then the subsequent idolatry that happened from that. And then the performance when the Pharisees came about and says, well, well, we're never going to worship idols. We're going to keep up a whole bunch of rules to ensure that. But they ended up worshiping themselves in their own effort. They longed, the prophets longed for Zion. To appear where God was enthroned. It would be the city of God, an eternal home. So this heaven really is a home. Even within church history, pastors and theologians have written about this longing. Augustine wrote a book, The City of God. And John Bunyan wrote about this uh, longing for the celestial city in Pilgrim's Progress. To show that this earth is not the home of God's people. We are to long for our eternal home, which is beyond our imagination. It is what we're looking for. We have, we've got a different zip code. We have a different address than what we occupy on this earth. And all of those who have gone before us in faith have been looking for this city. Again, Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they've been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This city that we see coming down out of heaven, this heavenly city, it already exists. It exists in the heavens. Jesus' death connects us to this heavenly city spiritually, but one day it will be holistic. It will be spiritually and physically. We will occupy this city. Now think about cities. The pursuit of cities within cities today is about human advancement. Even within our country, the big cities are usually, they like to be known as progressive. What are they doing? They're seeking out advancements financially. How do we seek financial security? How do we seek technological advances that will make life better? How do we, uh, and and within cities, there's there's the university central. We want to seek 
intelligence. We want to seek academics. But cities usually have robust medical industries as well. Cities are trying to create heaven on the earth. How do we, how do we get better? How do we do this better? But it still echoes Babel from Genesis chapter 11. See, in, in today, the cities that are still, you look at the skyscrapers and they're known by names. It still echoes Babel. There's still a pursuit of how do we, one, make a name for ourselves, but really how do we create eternal life on this earth? Genesis 11. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We see that with the internet. It's the biggest thing. And social media, what's the biggest draw? It connects us all as a people. Daryl Johnson in his commentary, Discipleship on the Edge, says, in the Bible, cities are places of arrogance and violence. Cain kills Abel and runs off to hide from God in a city. Humanity seeks to live independently from God and builds the Tower of Babel. And in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the city of man finally expresses itself in Babylon, the harlot, the embodiment of rebellion and immorality. Everybody's looking for a city. Even those that flee city. You know, we, my family's been... I had the opportunity uh, over the years to be able to go and visit New York City. And half of my family loves the energy of the city. Half of it's like, get me out of here. This gives me anxiety. I don't like this. I can see it from afar. Give me the skyline. I don't want to be in the middle of it. But even New York City, apart from New York City was founded very differently than the other early cities of the colonies, the United, which became the United States that we know. Those other ones were really for religious expression. We want to be able to love God the way we want. The Dutch founded New York City, New Amsterdam, financially. They wanted to make money. That's what they did. It took them 17 years to build a church after the founding of the city. And you still feel that. You still feel the financial drive down by Wall Street. You, f- you feel... People and what the saying goes, go, you can go to the city and you can make a name for yourself or you can go to the city and reinvent yourself. Cities are longing for heaven on the earth. Now, it's, it's very important. Now, the city is all, it's a physical city, but it's also a mentality because Babylon, the city is everywhere. We have that mentality and we we're we're, uh, combating that, that mentality, but the church is for the city as well. And the church should be in the city and the church should be reaching the city, both physically and spiritually. We're still in the city and we are to seek the welfare of the city and we are to cultivate the gospel for the foreshadowing of heaven so we can let everybody know you're, you're chasing all of these successful advancements. I understand, but there's a true heaven that we need to go after. Uh, That foreshadowing of heaven, this is where I think the post-millennial mind uh, perspective on the end times has a great point. 
post-millennials say that the gospels keep, keep on going and going and going until the gospel is seen physically on the earth, in the heavens, being established when Jesus comes back. That's still good for us to think about. We need to seek for the gospel's flourishing through the church. So this is a heavenly home, but it is also a holy home. The city of God is holy. And I love this. Uh, the, the image is the sea is no more. In the Old Testament, within scriptures, the sea represents the tumultuous waters of evil. When Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee and all of a sudden a storm comes up, Satan's trying to kill him in that moment. So they've all known the sea represents this evil in the world. And when the city of God comes down from heaven, there won't even be a ripple of evil anywhere to be found. The sea is no more. Remember a few chapters ago, Jesus is standing on a sea of glass. He He calms everything. And so when he says, peace, be still, and his disciples see it, he's in that moment caring for them and describing his presence, his powerful presence, and how it calms life, but he's also foreshadowing heaven. He's he's foreshadowing a new earth where the sea and evil will disappear and it will be nothing. This city is so holy that it's brand new. It's not just a restoration of what's going on. It means that what evil has destroyed in this life will be made new in the next life. God's holiness does that. It makes all things new. That's why the hope of heaven will not disappoint. He will be true to his word. So we see the city of God, but the city of God is also the glory of God. And in the glory of God, it's described the city is the bride. And that bride is in it an adorned bride, that bride is us. God's glory is seen in the people that are in this city, that build and make up this city. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but in the future holy city, there's a greater reflection occurring. It's called the doctrine of glorification, and it's going to be on full display. Remember, justification is one time God saying, you are forgiven of your sins and Christ's righteousness is put on you. You can be in my presence forever. Nobody can, not even the devil himself can't tell you to get out. It's justified. We are justified by faith, not by works, but by faith. Now in our Christian life, we experience sanctification. Whereas we give ourselves over to the Lord and cooperate with him in obedience, seeing Jesus exalted, we become more like Jesus every day. That's not in order to get to heaven. It's because we've already been justified. So we become more and more like him. So our experience of him grows. Because when our experience in sanctification grows, it experiences our appetite for heaven. You know, you go to buffets aren't as popular as they used to be. But, you know, you go to a buffet, probably for good reason, because it's a lot of sharing. <laughs> and people are, yeah, some people are weird and disgusting. And so I, I digress. I haven't been to a buffet in a Take that back. No, we we went on a school trip coming back from. Uh, I'm looking at Sean because we went to Mr. Gaddy's in in Denham Springs, and that was a little weird. Still, it's like hmm, hmm. <laughs> was that the oh was that the first one you've been to ever? Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> 
But when you go, you have some people that they can't do eight plates. They're just going back. They're getting food, and it's piled up. You have some people that it's three plates. Some it's just one. But here, when everybody leaves, everybody's satisfied. So look, our experience right now is preparing for us an appetite of satisfaction in heaven. I want to go like a hundred plate. You know what I'm talking about? I want to experience the Lord so much in this life that it's equivalent to this, just give me more and more and more and more and more of Jesus because it's glorious. That's what we long for, but that's a glorification. Glorification is we are resurrected. We really do meet Jesus and we, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we are changed and we have a glorious resurrected body filled with glory and power. Isn't that wild? That's how it's described. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. So, so is it with the resurrection of the, uh, of the dead. What is sown perishable? What is raised? It will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Yes, power raises it, but raised with power. That's the original word. The original uh, word in that language is dunamis, which is the word we get the word dynamite from. Same one that Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Dynamite. Boom. (laughs) Raised in glory. This God, God has, he has prepared his bride. And this is not an experience that, oh, we just, God, give us imagination to, to even capture what you're describing. He's made everything ready and in every way to be with him in his glorious presence. He makes us glory with his glory so we can experience his glory more. He makes us power with his power when joined together is beyond our conceptual imagination of how glorious and wonderful and exciting that will be. That's what awaits us, and it will not disappoint. It will not disappoint. And oh, this is the dwelling place. This glory of God is his dwelling. In the Old Testament, God dwelt behind a thick curtain in the tabernacle and in the temple. What was once unapproachable, only one man, the high priest, going inside one time a year on the Day of Atonement, is now, remember when Jesus died, that curtains ripped in two from top to bottom? We have access, but in the heavenly access, it will be unhindered, unfettered access. What was unapproachable is now very approachable and welcoming. We won't cower. We won't wonder, oh, we can't look. No, we can look and we can experience And enter in. And this is a fulfillment, a long awaited promise that will be fulfilled. Jeremiah 31 tells us of this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Hear the overlap with Revelation. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What promise? The thing that keeps us out of God's presence is our sin. 
he, he deals with that. He cares for us and loves us through the death of his son, that when we trust, we are brought into his presence, and this presence will be glorious. God's glory, think of it, it's whatever makes him God. And in the Old Testament, uh, whenever, and, and within the scriptures, when God appeared in glory, it was a weighty thing. And the word for glory means weight. One of the trans, translations for the word is just weight. You're not pumping iron, you're pumping glory kind of in this weird way. It was heavy. Remember the, when God's glory shows up at the temple after Solomon builds it, the priest couldn't even stand up to minister. Everybody was just down. So, but that's not a, in heaven, I wonder how that's going to feel. Because we're not going to be weighed down by it. It actually is going to be uplifting because God will be manifesting himself in his glory in heaven. And we are participating with that glory. It's just, that's fun to think about. What's that going to feel like? And then we see that there is no temple there. Because the whole thing is the temple. God dwelling with his bride is his temple. And this is a fulfillment we see of Ezekiel 40, where Ezekiel is taken uh, and he sees all of these dimensions for this new Jerusalem, this new temple that will appear from the heavens. But when, when we see that there's no temple in the city, it means there's no central location of God's dwelling. He's all over it because he's in his people, with his people, and he's all over it. We have a oneness that we will experience with him in glory. But this glory that comes out of heaven has some dimensions to it. We see that the city's 1,200 stadia, or 12,000 rather, uh, I miss. Put that in my notes. 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. It's a stadia's equivalent. 12,000 stadia would be equivalent to about 1,300 miles. But remember, uh, the numbers within Revelation, we, we look at them more. I think they probably have a both and component to figurative and literal. But they, they're more of symbols than they are statistics. And so if we think that through, the number 12 is what's key. This is, this is 12, a number that God uses to demonstrate that he's accomplishing his plan. 12 tribes of Israel. God accomplishes the glory of Jesus coming through his 12 tribes. And then 12 apostles. God accomplishes the mission of the gospel beginning with 12 apostles. When God uses the word 12, he says this, my plan's being accomplished. Now one day, it will be done. It will be mission accomplished. And so we have this 12 by 10 by 10 by 10 triples, triple tens. This God is telling everybody, I got this and it's going to be awesome. But when it's not just dimension, length and width, it's height as well. And for Jewish readers listening to this, well, somebody's reading when they read it, the cube that was in the Old Testament was the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. That was the cube. And so what's being described is this temple that comes down, it is God's glory. What was unapproachable, now everybody lives in. And so when Jesus says he's preparing a place for us, he's preparing a place, part of that is preparing glory for us and preparing us for that glory. 
as we submit to him and as we love him. There's 12 types of stones. The high priest, when he would enter, when he would minister, he wore a breastplate of 12 stones, one for each of the tribes. Now, these are probably referencing uh, the, the names that we see from Revelation chapter 7. But we have 12 stones. We have 12 gates with angels. Now, remember, these angels don't have swords like the ones that are guarding the Garden of Eden. No, because no, no, there's no need to keep everybody out. We're welcoming everybody in. And then you have, and the 12 gates have the 12 names of the tribes. And then the 12 foundation stones that bear the 12 names of the apostles. Now, the gates, I think, are symbolizing an access of all nations to come to the fulfilled promise, being Abraham's offspring. And the 12 foundations represent the apostles' work in bringing that promise to the ends of the earth, to the nations. But all of it means... Jesus wins, and his mission will be accomplished, and his glory will be with his people. That's why there's no temple, because everybody's the temple. Everybody's experiencing the presence of God. And what is this experience that we see? In verse 4, we see there's no suffering. Oh, this is glorious. No more tears. No death. No crying. No pain. Last Friday, my back just decided to quit working like it's used to. And so Saturday, last Saturday, I was, it was a week ago, just laid out. Uh, God gave me grace last Sunday to be here at church. But I'm telling you, when everybody left, I looked at my wife and went, I need to go home. My back is really hurting. And so I was laid out Sunday, Monday, spent most of the, and I'm, Asking the Lord, like, you know, usually I can, I do something. I don't know what I did to irritate my back. And usually I can figure that out. And it's like uh, maybe two, at most two nights, good rest. I'm back to normal. Everything is good. And it just wasn't happening that way. And I asked the Lord, God, what's going on? So when something lingers in my life, like, God, right, you got my attention. What are you teaching me? <laughs> and immediately I remember, oh, I'm teaching Revelation 21 this week. So preachers get to experience what they're preaching the week before. Because when I read this, I went, no more pain. Wow. That's hard for me to conceptualize. Because we have emotional pain. We have physical pain. We have spiritual pain. We have pains. And they're going to all be gone. They'll be gone. The things that distract us from loving the Lord, the things that keep us from experiencing God's glory on this earth will be completely removed and we will experience him and we'll be satisfied with it with springs from the water of life and we will, we will have sonship and experience that sonship with God in a radiant way from verse 11. There's a radiance that we see that I, I think about just our joy the radiance of joy, and then the high wall that reminds us of the security that we have. I think that means that God will protect us forever, and sin will never, ever have its way. And then we see this pure gold, transparent as glass. 
You know, in, in our experience, you can't purify gold to where it's, where it's clear. God can. And he will purify that gold and make it... Tra- but I think he's talking about us. And there's light there. The lamb is the light and gives the light. Uh, that could mean physical light. There's no sun. But I-, I wonder if it's more understanding. We will continue to understand and God will continue revealing and manifesting his glory and we will learn about it. And we will be amazed by it and we'll have more opportunity to worship him because of what he's giving. The light of understanding, the light of knowledge. But there's also, I think, in verse 24 that shows us there's going to be some creativity there because nations are represented. I mean, we've had this promise over and over that God's calling the nations. That means not just one ethnicity is able to reveal God's glory and how God made man and woman to reveal his glory in distinct, separate ways. God has created nations to do the same thing. We have different ethnicities because God is saying, I'm glorious on a whole that requires everybody to participate in that glory. But when you have different types of people, You have different mindsets. You have different abilities. You have creativity. And I think we will continue to create and put things together. That's why I think people will be able to, if you want to do this, build a spaceship and travel light years. Literally. I saw it in Star Wars. Let's do it. Yeah. Do it. But there's creativity and and these cultural traditions that people will bring gives us culture that we'll experience. I I don't think we'll all have white robes. It might be a ceremony where we have a white robe, where the martyrs receive those. I think we change. You want to do an Egyptian garb? Sure, go ahead. Nobody's going to judge you for it. You're not going to have that weird fear that you've in, been invited to a, a costume party and you're the only one that's dressing up. Like, hmm, am I the only one dressing up? And then you decide not to do it. You know, those little kid fears, gone. See, because kings are bringing their glory. Kings, they're bringing what they have governed, the civilization that they have governed. They're like, hey, this is what we're bringing because all of that is a representation of God's glory. And he's showing that, and we get to participate. But in verse 25, the gates are never, ever shut. We have unhindered access with God's presence forever and ever and ever. Now, where we go with this, let, our, let your imagination wander and, and be fun with it. Be kids in thinking about heaven. But Jesus promises all of this to the one who conquers. In verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I'm reminded of all the times he said that in the letters to the seven churches that we looked at at the beginning of this. Because remember, that's what his readers, John's readers are connecting those things as well. Jesus gives us the encouragement of his people. So he's saying to us, this awaits you. It's wonderful and glorious. Keep living faithfully. Because that's how you will conquer. In Revelation 2 and 3, we see the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. We'll see that in chapter 2 next week. 2.11, the one who conquers will, be, will not be hurt by the second death. 2.17, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden man and will give him the white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
26, verse 26, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. In 321, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. These are the promises that await us, church. And our commission is simply to live faithfully. To be his bride, to experience his adorning grace on us that makes us holy throughout our actions and our thoughts so we can love one another into Jesus to one day be presented to him. And oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we will sing and shout the victory. Amen. Amen. Let's be reminded of our commission. Here's what we do. We got that huge thing ahead of us. But let's be reminded, today we go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. God bless you.